Okay, so today I am happy to catch up with an old friend and business partner, Lawrence Lundy Bryan. Welcome, Lawrence. Those of you that have been following Outlier for a while will hopefully remember Lawrence from back in the day when we were a team of three or four. I think, Lawrence, you joined Aaron and I as like employee number, yeah, either three or four, I think. Lawrence, after yeah. Predating even the accelerator when we were a little bit more like an incubator, I guess. And Lawrence joined as head of head of research. He's now partner for research at Luna Ventures and actually just dropped his latest thought piece, which looked brilliant and interesting. And knowing the work that we'd done with Lawrence in the past on things like the convergence thesis, convergence stack, convergence ecosystem, blockchain-enabled convergence with AI. It's back. It's back. Blockchain and AI is back. We were right. We were right, I think. Quite, we right. yeah. Really kind of significantly contributed and, and led to a lot of thesis work at Outlier Ventures that still holds, that's still kind of on, on North North Star, um, and yes, is is kind of manifesting in the world, albeit a little bit later, perhaps than we'd we'd uh, we'd hope to outlier anyway. But he's continuing that good work at Luna Ventures. Luna Ventures is doing early stage investments into deep tech. So for him, I guess continuation of what was back then. I mean, blockchain was definitely considered deep tech. It was kind of at its R and D R and D phase, right? It, it wasn't yet beginning to be commercialized. You could argue only only just being commercialized now. And he's been doing lots of interesting things at Luna, as well as advising the UK government and various other organizations, uh, World Economic Forum, OECD, etc., on on deep tech, future of tech. I was probably due a kind of coffee, lunch, beer uh, with him, and I thought, well, it would just be a waste for us to kind of not not share that with the kind of wider community. So let's get into let me maybe so I've done kind of intro to to you relationship to outlier, but maybe just like give us five minutes on your career trajectory leading you to your role at, at Luna and what you're doing at Luna now? It's a very clear thread, but only retrospectively. The reality of what I've done, I, I studied politics and then I worked in sort of strategy consulting and then as a market analyst, all the way through to the, the latest bit of work called State of the Future and, and all of the, the organizations you mentioned. It's all about trying to put together a few different themes, whether it's a technology or a market or a geography, and find interesting intersections. The convergence thesis is, is the canonical example of that. But I mean, it happened... I think I'm very interested as a generalist, right? Because I study politics, so I'm not... You know, we have lots of PhDs um, in the team and, and in deep tech, it's full of, you know, extremely detailed people that, that have the, the, the main expertise. I don't have that, but what I do have is sort of a general curiosity around a lot of things. And often I find interesting things at the intersections. When I joined you guys in 2014... I think I'd previously been doing a work with Intel over in um, Portland and we were looking at the role, if I recall the title, the role of uh, Bitcoin and or distributed ledger technology for Intel. We did a whole project for, for a year or so and uh, gave them a report, which turned into uh, Sawtooth Lake, which was then gifted to Hyperledger, as I recall. So very interested in, in Bitcoin and crypto back in 2014, and then sort of spent the time with you trying to focus on crypto to go very, very deep. But then, uh, you know, I, you can only 
uh, you can only keep a generalist down for so long. And then I had to find uh, broader. Now I'm extremely broad, uh, which is deep tech, which is a bit too broad, um, even for me. So I'm sort of specializing a little bit in privacy enhancing technologies, which we can get into silicon and semiconductors, particularly interested in and a few other themes we can get into so i think you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice because you have and can go pretty deep into particular domains i remember specifically in ai you certainly helped me as as an organization go you know far deeper than we could have done in isolation whilst not necessarily being you know somebody as you say with a phd in that discipline but i think also working in deep tech kind of requires you to be able to navigate a lot of unknowns, right? The whole point of it being deep tech is that there are a lot of unknowns, certainly pathways to commercialization are unknowns. There might be multiple pathways, even within a particular domain where people are proposing, you know, a particular implementation or or approach is going to be the the dominant one. Weighing those up or interrogating and weighing them up and then timing them, I guess, is kind of the the base skill set, right? The methodology that I use to say the future, which is really simple, it's supposed to be simple. I'll go into it. It's five stages. So like how technically mature is the technology? And I only use like a basic score, one to five, right? Anybody could do it with some basic understanding like how technically ready is it maps to the technical readiness level score one to nine and then it's you know what are the drivers which is where i sort of maybe have some insight these can be macro drivers so for a lot of the technologies like small modular reactors um or deep geothermal it's climate change right it's a clear driver and one of the the things that we do which i think is interesting is the restraints which is often maybe, because this is how you get to timing, like what are the restraints? Are there regulation? Psychedelics, is the thing banned? So you can think through how hard will this be deployed? Then novelty, how different is it to what already exists? So this is particularly interesting with them, with say blockchains generally. They score really high on novelty because of the thing that they do, there's no other technology that exists that does the same thing. And then it gets misapplied to other things where there's maybe better things. But generally, I like to find those technologies where there is no other thing that could be used as an alternative. So that's sort of novelty. And then the, the two areas that we land on, which is how you go from a long list of 100 technologies to, say, 20 or 10 interesting ones, is how impactful can it be based on the, those things, right? Based on, you know, a five plus would be whole brain emulation, um, large language models and a one or a low would be, I don't know, risk five, which is just like open source instruction set architecture. And you score from one to five and, and then you look, okay, based on the restraints and the drivers, what's the right timing? So when should we be investing in this? When will the market be large enough for an investment? And that's sort of the process or that methodology that I've gone through, you know, systematically to try and go from the universe of deep tech that you can invest into well, no, let's invest in deep geothermal energy, which we're not going to invest in. That's a bad example, but I don't know. NFTs could be an interesting example of something that actually you probably would invest in because of that skill set, of that uh, methodology, sorry. There's lots of research institutes that that kind of do this work on deep tech, right? You know, they could be publicly funded, they could be private. But I find that if you're working in venture, you kind of have an advantage on all the other things that you mentioned because of the last point that you mentioned, which is if you're having to deploy capital, you're speaking to lots of different startups, you're seeing all the different approaches that they're taking, you're just getting a much more practical insight into 
what people are actually doing, what they're communicating are their limitations. Okay, it's slightly earlier stage, but I think, you know, versus just theoretically being sat in a research institute trying to time this stuff, but removed from actually the innovation part, it just makes everything else much harder, right? That's exactly right on, on, on two fronts. One, because sitting in a venture firm, you have more information. That's right. You have your existing portfolio, which may be pushing the state of the art in fully homomorphic encryption, for example. You can map what we know is really going on versus what people are saying publicly. But then the second thing is, having recently decided for bad or for, for, for good or ill, to publish weekly, like to have a, this, you know, Substack which I do weekly, which is if you start having to put yourself out there and actually show the show your working, show your analysis, you're holding yourself to account. But then even more, you have to put money towards your, your viewpoints. So it's not a consulting firm that says the market's going to grow by 10% and right, who cares, right? Or this is the next big thing, or who cares? If we say, and uh, the research suggests this is the next big thing, we're going to put money to it. So we have to be damn sure. So I feel like there's a information asymmetry, but also just skin in the game, which means that compared to the sorts of things I was saying 10 years ago, the level of conviction you need is so much greater. And is that weekly thing based on the velocity of innovation that you're seeing? Like there's almost a requirement to be publishing with that cadence or is it is it is it just a personal thing it's related to the fact to, to hold myself account the state of the future process came about as an internal project to say can we find repeatable investment pieces right is that something we can do so you come up with the methodology and i i wrote maybe i think in the end it was about 94 i always say 100 plus but i think it was 94 or something when no one's going to see it the quality was worse and I, I know that now. So the quality was worse and I would say things I would throw out and then I'd move on. And um, when you know you have to publish it and in the best case, some world leading experts are going to read what you say and tell you, you wrote something wrong on the internet, then you have to do better quality research and you have to like force yourself. And so I've decided that you know, by publishing, I can get that feedback faster. So the way I see it is that there's a bit of a local model. It's not true because all the Lunar team have contributed. And so we have, you know, lots of contributions, but generally it's a local model, right? A Lunar local model. And the more that I can open that up and get contributors and feedback, the, the better, the more accurate the model will be. So that's the way I see it. Yeah. And I think that's really kind of the DNA of outlier thinking aloud is like critical right to kind of get 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 that feedback obviously that's something i personally subscribe to i, I tried to get the org to but it's hard like a lot of people don't especially the more technical people actually don't don't like thinking out loud and publishing they, they want to be as technically correct as possible which can be quite limiting to that feedback maybe let's segue into the state of state of future the recent one i want to get into some of its themes but maybe just as a, as a segue to kind of link say at the top end, we were talking about some of the AI stuff happening, coming true, or decentralized instances of it. A quick reflection on the convergence thesis and where you think that stands today. Crypto's weird because you sort of didn't need to get the timing quite right. My gut tells me that the the that it was it's it still stands to be correct, and it will be even more correct as time goes on. It was obviously ahead of its time, and for a normal investment thesis outside of crypto, it would have been dead because you know we would have been we'd have mistimed the market. I think what I've come to realize is you can only really be contrarian eighteen months ahead of everyone else because right? you need someone to follow up. In crypto, it was it was different. So and I, it'd be interesting what you think because you, you know the market better than I do now. There was a moment in time where these big 
you know, wildly ambitious projects, not just layer ones, but I'm thinking like Aragon at the time, um, Ocean Protocol. There are a whole bunch of these projects that were trying to do something that never would have been funded under the normal bench capital system, quite rightly, because there was no market at that time. If you're going to hold it to very strong account, it was wrong because the timing was wrong, but directionally it was correct, and we were in the right market to make the bet. I sort of dabble in crypto, but I'm, I'm, I'm strongly of the view you have to be in it every day to be a good investor in it, and I'm not anymore. But one of the areas is sort of decentralized AI, which is still at that interface, which I still am always pulled back into because I think that the, the value proposition is so powerful. And if, if anything, what we've seen with large language models and what we've seen with the, the value of data go up and these large language models scraping the internet for all the data they can find is that the idea that they become these data monopolies, you know, if you didn't believe it five years ago or four years ago, well, you can sure see it now. So the actual value proposition is not stronger. I spoke with somebody, uh, a founder building in the space. I'm very intrigued to know, is that the theme? Is Not just is it the next hype, but is that the actual thing that starts bringing people from outside of crypto into crypto? Because that is the thing that the hook I don't know, interesting to see how you you feel, having been there the whole time as it's developed. Well, so it's interesting. I had, not by design, actually, but the last guest, or the last podcast published, was with Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol, re- reflecting on his thinking, Ocean Protocol, but also more generally, you know, his thinking around decentralized AI, given... Certainly, from my perspective, he was one of the first people I, I'd come across talking about this in a sophisticated way. So it was interesting, you know, to have him on and and then and, and you kind of following off the back of that. The problem with crypto is it cycles. It has this extreme attention surplus or attention deficit that really kind of interrupts the innovation, the innovation cycle, right? It has this kind of weird market cycle that disrupts, perverts, it distorts the innovation cycle. You know, I remember when we kind of did the Fetch investment, we did the Ocean investment, and you'd speak to some of the big funds now that are still around that are all about making AI and blockchain investments. And, you know, they back then, they just say that's sci-fi, you know, and it's and in, in a way they were right. And from their investment kind of perspective, you know, they, they have these time-based GPLP funds. They have to return funds within that time frame in a way that we don't outlier. We can make our investments. Obviously, we hope to time them correctly, but we don't have to. We don't have to be right this cycle. We could be right, you know, the next next cycle. But I do think that I still believe all roads lead to Web3. And I think AI is going to be a driver of that because if if you kind of look at the explosion in, in as you say, large language models, Already, you're seeing the limitations of how it's been trained on open web data. It's kind of plateauing a little bit. All of a sudden, you do need to incentivize this new data economy. And obviously, there's several years now building out that infrastructure. Will it be used? You know, could it compete with perhaps a, a more traditional centralized approach? Will it live in parallel? We'll see. I actually think now is probably the moment for a lot of our convergence thesis thinking to, to actually see how it how it plays out. I think it took a lot longer than we'd thought, maybe even hoped, but I do think directionally it's true. And I think we, we made as good a bets as we could have done to have a, a stake in, in, in that race. So, you know, kind of just watching and seeing how, 
how it plays out. It was, it was actually included, and uh, subsequently I've come to believe it's like a critical enabler of, of those. I sort of still think of it as a stack, correctly or incorrectly, but, you know, crypto and then AI on top. There's this interface, which has sort of been interesting, privacy, and I, I, I think it's broadly called privacy-enhancing technologies now. And actually, it was one of the, the first um, areas of research when I joined Luna, which was to say they'd already made an investment into uh, Zama, was doing fully homomorphic encryption. Uh, in fact, um, applying it to blockchains now, interestingly enough. This idea of there's a missing bit of infrastructure and it is this privacy technology, whether it's fully homomorphic encryption or multi-party computation. Zero-knowledge proofs are already seen. As an example, they are a privacy-enhancing tech, right? Zero-knowledge is actually one of the first pets to be applied to, to, to crypto. And I, I would imagine we are seeing with MPC because uh, Coinbase acquired, I think it was Unbound, or what, most of wallets now are, use some form of multi-party computation for key management. So I think there's like this privacy layer that once it's built out is an enabler for, for, for data to be stored more appropriately on these on, on, on the broader Web3 ecosystem. It was in there and I went back and reread it before this podcast and it was it was it was no it was noticed but I, in retrospect I think focusing more on that I don't know if there would have been better investments at the time, but I do think that's an area that we're going to see even more in. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I mean, obviously, we did make the secret network, what became the secret network investment. Right, which Enigma, exactly. Yeah, pre- previously Enigma. Recently, I think we're now missing link, especially in a commercial sense, you know, where multiple parties are comfortable, prepared to begin to aggregate data to, you know, develop collective uh, learning models or whatever it may be. They, we kind of just need a little bit more robust uh, privacy tech. At the same time, actually doing the ZK stuff now, you realize it's still very early, right? There's still a, a lot of stuff, very kind of hard technical problems that need to be built out, a lot of middleware that needs to be built out. Even s- silicon, even all the way down to ASICs, right? ZK ASICs, exactly. So on the one hand, it feels closer. On the other hand, you know, you kind of go, oh, well, actually, shit, there's several more problems that now, you know, it's kind of like that. You open up the box, you think you've got the present, and inside it's like another problem that you've you got to solve. But anyway, let, let, let's get into State of the Future because there's a lot in there. We're going to have a huge amount of time, and I want to want to do it, do it justice. So could you, I don't know if it's important to give context to previous state of the futures, like themes that you built on versus just going straight into what it is today. I don't know what you find. The trajectory of it is is this basic methodology to try and find repeatable investment pieces. And the way I conducted it, this idea is you would have a bunch of cards, you know, three by three grid or four by four, whatever. You would have, you know, each technology with a basic assessment. You know, you'd look at zero knowledge proofs, multi-party computation and small modular reactors, nuclear fusion. And you would have them all. You would try and find interesting intersections to invest in. that's That's the concept behind it. So this sort of structure of a technology, really, it was there from the beginning. And now... You know, that was phase one. Well, actually, phase one was I was going to interview three people per card, right? I would find three people to interview on GameFi or DSI, and then I would write the card. And it turns out that was an impossible task, partly because everybody disagreed with each other and I couldn't find a consistent idea. I went away for two, effectively two years and just wrote as much as I could that was wrong on the internet. And that was phase one. 
and then it's launched, it's open source. Phase two is get external contributors, people telling me it's wrong, improving it, doing interviews to improve it, which I'm going through the process now. And then phase three, which I hope we get to, is it becomes an open source commons. It becomes you want to invest in, in deep tech or your interest, your curious person you're interested. You can go and Wikipedia style, you just contribute to it. And this sort of upvote, downvote. I think I joke on the about page. In theory, it could be a DAO. It probably won't be a DAO because I don't want to take legal liability for what for what, for what someone's going to say exactly. But that, that's the concept of it. So it's this three-stage thing. Ultimately, it, it should be the commons. And yet the work now is to just consistently do interviews, improve the, the overall process, and just try to get all of these technologies to a, a, you know, a more robust assessment. All right. Well, then let's, let's jump into it. Where are we at? What is the state of the, the future? First thing to say is I could have put numbers to all of them. There is a cargo cult math approach here where I could have said, this scores 96 and this scores 52. Um, in fact, I may even do a top of the pop style, like top 100, which might even be quite good. I don't know. But um, the best I could come up with was underrated, overrated, or correctly rated. I think it's an interesting, you know, traffic light approach to saying, I think I wrote the, in the first couple of subsect posts, you know, the three most overrated technologies and the three most underrated technologies. I'll pick on a, on a few um, that sort of elucidate the work that I'm trying to do which is there are some technologies which we know about. And then you look at, say, the supply side, what innovations are happening underneath the surface that are making things, you know, in hardware, miniaturizing, or the cost uh, is getting cheaper, or I don't know, a variety of things that will happen on the technical side. Or And there's also demand side changes. There's regulation, changing behavioral trends, there's generational shifts. So you can sort of look at things that are changing in the market that might change a technology from being a small market to a large, like fast growth rate. In fact, over time, I've come to realize I'm actually just looking for technologies that are currently growing 5% that are then going to grow 20%. What forced that change? What is the catalyst? And so the ones that are most interesting are those where there's a catalyst, which the market isn't aware of. Or I don't think the market's aware of. It's not priced in somehow. I don't think so. Exactly. And for weird reasons as well. So just to give one example, surprisingly underrated would be brain recording, because I don't really want to get into brain computing interfaces yet, even though I, the last thing I did on State of the Future last interview was with a brain computing interface company called Wise Wise Ear. I, I find it interesting because on the one hand, it seems very sci-fi, but on the other hand, we can see consistent drip, uh, drip by drip, month by month um, developments in sort of uh, whether it's imaging equipment, and EEG machines or, or various other machines that are able to, to get signals from non-invasive procedures, right? Because we can have invasive procedures like Neuralink, right? Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is an invasive surgical procedure. But I'm, I'm not interested in that so much as, you know, hats or even in earbuds, actually, that uh, have electrodes and they're reading brain waves or brain signals or any biosignal, actually. And then effectively, you know, it's a bit cargo culty, but throwing it through a large language model and something fun comes out the other end. Think that is a data problem. It's actually not necessarily a hardware problem, not really a science problem. It's literally just we need to collect as much data as possible. And once we throw it into these trained models, we will find out things that we, we don't know. I believe that we are much closer to having those data sets. Meta do a lot of work on this, interestingly. <laughs> but there are other AI labs that are doing the same exactly. And, and Apple do some work with the Vision Pro, which is sort of proto-brain computing interfaces. But the, the point of it is, it's so 
groundbreaking if it were to be true brain recording technology it's so the, the amount of value that it would create as upside and downside would be tremendous and yet to me it feels very very close so that's an example of something that something changed in the market large language models the secondary consequences of that are we need lots of you know trained models and they can throw in images words well the con- conceit is what if we just fed in brain images and what if we, we fed in brain signals what comes out the other end to me, that feels quite close. Forgive my ignorance, but is that the same or actually completely opposite to this thing that was in the news recently where they stimulated a Pink Floyd song in somebody's mind's eye, I guess, mind's ear, right. artificially? It's, it's the other way around, isn't it? But is there any kind of... Like- it's bi-directional, exactly. So it's, uh, read and write is the best way to think about it. So we have read technology, which is what I'm talking about. And then the read and write becomes a brain computing interface. So write is to be able to you know, um, stimulate specific neurons to have specific effects. Now, we sort of already do that, weirdly, with deep brain stimulation. We already sort of, a deep brain stimulation, DBS is a known modality, a known um, uh, technology. It's also in state of the future as an assessment. And it's used, FDA approved to, for, I think, depression and a variety of other um, neurodegenerative diseases or n- n- disorders. We, we already sort of stimulate, that's sort of right. And all the effort over the next 15, 20 years will be, eventually, we'll get to a point where we can read and write to the brain. But my contention is the read read piece just understanding what's going on is close the right piece to me feels much longer much further away i'm assuming if you can read the brain you get the data you can train the models and then presumably that could then write i don't know well it's, it's the right it's that's the right avenue or at least that's the, the the thesis that would be the right avenue yeah and whether or not you start as a healthcare this is a good debate because you start as a healthcare company to collect the data which is sort of what a lot of people, uh, companies say start as a healthcare company collect the data others say too slow everyone needs surgery you need clinical trials let's create devices where we can collect relatively weak signals but you can get a lot of it so it's sort of this volume uh, quantity versus quality debate in the industry all right cool so in spirit of top and the pops we count down i don't know was that like number five i don't know how much time we've got what would number four be i, I think a particularly interesting one silicon because we can we can talk about silicon as it relates to crypto and also as it relates to, to ai and pretty much everything else silicon is not one assessment within it i've wrote about chiplets i've wrote about um a particular type of memory called high bandwidth memory a whole bunch of things optical computing, analog computing, quantum computing. So it's all there. But collectively, I'm of the view that it all boils down eventually to hardware. Like we did the software, well, we continue to do software over the X number of years. And certainly the last 15 years, most of the innovation, most of the capital went into software. And AI is already reaching this point where we're not, Moore's law will continue. It's not dead. I don't believe that for a minute. The innovation in the supply chain is, is vast. We're continuing to miniaturize. And I think electronic computing has a, still a long way to go. If we think about all of the, especially AI and large language models, just because of the the, the, the 50% growth rate year on year, I think, if you, that's on the probably the lower end of the estimates, the overall market. The market has exploded. And there are bottlenecks all over the supply chain. I'm surprised that that didn't happen in Web3 earlier. I was always thinking eventually it will come down to hardware, the chips. I remember the trusted execution environments were used a little bit, now probably TGX. And there was GPUs and there was obviously the Bitcoin mining was part of that hardware piece. But at zero knowledge, 
I would I would argue really needs dedicated hardware. I think we're starting to get that. FHE and the dedicated hardware, and we're seeing it. I suppose my, my overall point um, around the importance of it is they become there's only so much you can do in, in software and eventually the bottleneck for compute and the bottleneck for memory and all of these bottlenecks become in silicon which is why I'm spending a lot of my time trying to understand that supply chain because it's, you know, I think it'd be a trillion, the overall semiconductor industry will be worth a trillion dollars by 2030 or something. NVIDIA is already worth a trillion dollars. Like there's the numbers for this stuff is vast. And if I were going to bet the farm on the next 10 years, I would bet the farm on silica or just hardware rather than anything on software. Yeah. It's interesting because obviously, as you know, NVIDIA are kind of good friends of ours and We've one way or the other always kept in contact with Intel, you know, since since your days, and both of them have almost all but dropped kind of crypto from one of their growth drivers, and of course now it's just it's the, the growth story is just attached to AI. But it is interesting, you know, you then you then talk about things like zero knowledge. I've not really heard any mention of that as a as a driver in the context of you know chip silicon and stuff like that from the big the big. Uh, it's a relatively it'll be a relatively small niche application to start then we see a couple of startups trying to focus on it. the problem with anything in silicon this is the problem with investing in it is scale that you just need to get capacity you need to persuade fabs to, to tape out your chips and it's much easier to sell to apple with a guaranteed market or nvidia than it is to, to a startup so there's challenges around investing in it which is why i think you know, spending a lot of time in trying to understand it is important. I would imagine if, if it was crypto from 2015 to 2020 is the place to be, and maybe AI certainly now, 2022 to 2025 or something. I don't know. It's not that simple. But the third, the most important thing, China are already ahead of the game on this for sure. Just the amount of effort and innovation and time that can go into semiconductors. I would bet on that being the back end of this decade, the most important area. Yeah, I mean, you can see a lot of the geopolitics playing out around that, right? As people try to hedge, diversify against things happening in Taiwan and Samsung CEO released from jail to come back and take over the helm in South Korea at the request of Biden and various various other things, right? It's, it's becoming the, the most important geopolitical debate. All right, so that's four, five. Three. It's not quite that simple, but the one thing I would I know, I I'll grossly to... simplify it, but you know, in, in respect of your time, we, we could start at 99, but I don't know if you, you, you've got that much time. I can hear the kids. No, I, and it's not, I don't have it all in my, in my head either, but one thing I wanted to touch on, each of them are attached to a prediction, which eventually I'd like to put in a prediction market. But one of the predictions is that the largest uh, trained model is a DAO by 2030. So the, I think this is really interesting because I think that federated learning is the technology I'll touch on here. I came across it. It's not really a privacy enhancing technology at all. It's a sort of a machine learning technique in particular. But federated learning is a way to train. Lo- you have a local model train on a device, on an edge device. And it's a, it's an algorithm by which you can train your, your model locally and then you uh, send not the not any data, but just the weights, and um, send that back to a global model, right? So you can imagine Google tried it with federated learning on cookies or Flock. I don't know. I think federated learning on cookies, and it was mentioned a few times where you could keep your data at the edge. You know, never send your data to servers. I think that's really interesting and important. And I could imagine a community, a DAO, you know, an alternative to Hugging Face, which 
gives people the opportunity to you know share all of their browser data on their phone or GPS data. Use that to train a global model. It needs a little bit of privacy on top, maybe some differential privacy. Or that it doesn't have privacy guarantees. Federated learning, but you get the benefit of as an individual being able to train this global model. If you can get, it's the same decentralization thesis. If you can get a million people to let you use their devices because. Maybe you're, there's micro, maybe you're paying them for it, or there's some benefit as being part of a collective DAO. Then you are going to outcompete any company that can just do it themselves. Maybe uh, I don't know. Uh, OpenAI will probably be a trillion dollar company in a, a couple of years, so maybe not. But that's the thesis behind federated learning being a really critical enabler of this, you know, AI at the edge. Oh, well, that's quite a nice old school one for us anyway, and what one we've kind of been talking about for a while. And what's your view on, so I'm kind of still, before we get into maybe like the, the, the final two to highlight, agent-based systems. So like the more I look at something like OpenAI is, as I understand it, still highly centralized approach. I, I just can't see, even with another several billion in investment and everything else, how a for-profit platform AI could get anywhere near to generalized intelligence. It, it just requires so many specialist data points that I still bias towards this agent-based approach, which is you might have AI interface, which feels generalized because you're asking, hey, Siri, question A, and, and it can give you a specialist answer on everything. But behind that interface is a a market, effectively a marketplace of specialist agents owned and trained by, you know, billions of different participants. Please try again. Sorry, just try to answer that classic. I think that directionally that would be how I would approach, how I would think about the, the future. The difference is those agents at the moment, there's no need for them to be decentralized. I would love for them to be both private and decentralized. But for the moment, like Langchain is already like a pretty decent infrastructure for building this baby agi is another there's auto auto agi i think is the term but anyway there's a whole bunch of this there's a new class of these agents that are running around the internet and doing uh, we've seen a couple of companies do trying to do this for various various use cases but i think that is probably a good mental model for thinking about yeah there's the single interface but then behind it there are a bunch of agents that do various different things that are specifically trained and then the question is well Okay, it doesn't really matter what the interface is. You have all of those agents running around. What does the ownership model look like, right? Because that's ultimately what we're saying. And I like to think, what what are the privacy guarantees there as well? So yeah, it's like a single point, but then like a whole bunch of like interesting ecosystem stuff going on underneath. Uh, but I agree. You said marketplace. I think I'm more minded to think it's longer term. I think I actually say this in the privacy enhancing technology paper that ultimately a data marketplace is going to be the best way to allocate scarce resource, right? To, to manage up supply and demand. Eventually, how we get to like a, a full data marketplace requires a few more steps. Maybe Trent believes we're further ahead than. Maybe I do, but uh, maybe I spend too much time in regulated industries now and I don't actually see the future as, as easily. But still, I think that there's steps to get to this overall data marketplace or agent marketplace, but it feels that that is the inevitable outcome because we've seen over civilization that markets are the best way to allocate scarce resources with some regulation on the side to make sure it doesn't go totally out of balance. But yeah. So in aggregate, it feels and functions like AGI, but it's not 
an individual instance of it on a particular platform? That is already what um, OpenAI is. It is a bunch of different trained models. So it's not just a sing- singular one. And it's broken up and it's distributed because of different clusters. And the weeds of it, it, it yeah, again, it probably looks like what you were describing the future of that already. OpenAI and Anthropic and Cohere, all of these models are you know, smaller models that aggregate up. And I think we'll see that with newer models coming out over the next year, year or two will be the same. That'll be the pattern, right? Lots of locally trained models and a, and a UX that makes it seem simpler than it is. Awesome. So uh, final final two, and I'm putting you on the spot now to kind of pick, pick your favorite children, but if you're going to have to die on a hill. We didn't publish the state of the future work before the sort of blow up in large language models. Yes, there was GPT-3, and maybe sort of around the time of GPT-3, sort of before the explosion, maybe the December last year, maybe how I've seen it, maybe a bit before, I had written an analysis of, of I think, I don't think it was specifically large language models, but I think it was more, I think it was large language models, not Gen AI. But anyway, large language models as a five plus technology, five plus in my scoring, right? As in, there are only three or four that were five plus impact wise. Whole brain emulation is another one because they're transformative potentials. They really are a general purpose technology. And there aren't many of them in this whole assessment, but there are a few. One is large language models. Despite the hype, and we are in a hypey period, uh, and despite the money the money going in, I think my prediction is something in the order of by 2030, 10, you know, the productivity, labor productivity will have increased by 10% in OECD countries. That might not seem like a lot, but if we have anywhere near 10% increase in productivity, the economic gains that are vast. So I, I'm of the view that, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. There'll probably be actually, you know, a glut of products in the market over the next 24 months that fail to get PMF. And there might be media might say, start saying it, it, was, it, was, it was a hype. But slowly but surely, all of these tools, whether it's just the generation of content in music, we would see Spotify saying they will, they're not going to take down AI and songs, whether it be movies, you know, all the different forms of content. I think we have a general purpose technology for the creation of digital content. I don't have the capacity to think through the implications. So I just know they're going to be vast. And actually, there's very few other technologies that I, I think any of us will probably ever come across that will be as profound, even if we don't get to general intelligence. I don't think we have to surpass human, a human baseline intelligence to, to get all of the gains in it being a transformative um, technology. And then... You know, beyond that, beyond a general intelligence, I don't have the capacity to talk competently about, if I'm honest. Well, a lot of people don't even necessarily fully fully agree on that as a even a thing, right? So last but not least, what's the what's the final one you're gonna go out on? It's a good combination of the two. And it, and it maybe it's a good parallel because t- timing's wrong. So on the one hand, we have large language models. And on the other hand, I've spoke about neuroscience or brain recording. I'm sure I'm biased. I don't know if you know this, but I was going to study experimental psychology before I changed to politics totally randomly on a whim. Neuroscience has always been a keen keen interest. So I, I'm for sure biased. But I think that that is the vanguard. It's already the vanguard in, in, in healthcare to try and understand, as I said, you know, neural signals and neurons to try and you know, a, a, attach that to solve a lot of healthcare issues. This idea of whole brain emulation has fascinated me for a very long time because it's just a compute problem. Whole brain emulation is nothing more than just throwing a tremendous amount of compute to try and model the brain on various different scales right scales of the neuron and then scales within the neuron all the way through to the connections modeling that dynamically we don't have the compute capacity 
anywhere near the concubic capacity, according to the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, I think their best guess on when we would even have the right amount of compute power and memory at some reasonable cost is 2060. Doesn't it require quantum, like quantum computing? Yeah, it, what, I, I don't know, is the answer. And the reality is we don't know if we'll ever be able to create a, a noise. Well, at the moment, we're in like an intermediate stage, right? Noisy intermediate uh, quantum stage. We don't know if we'll ever really be able to come up with a practical quantum computer. People believe, but there's still some science risk and whether or not it's impossible at all. But yeah, quantum could be a part of it because we can obviously, you know, as high performance computing. But I think photonic computing could be a part of this in terms of parallelizing a tremendous amount of data. I think there's different approaches. But yeah, we just don't have the resources. So maybe a quantum computer comes along and we can bring that down. But the reason why I'm mentioning whole brain uh, emulation is that, you know, 2060 might be far away for us in our careers and in venture capital. <laughs> 2060 is in our children's lifetime. That's what's quite an interesting approach to state of the future is, oh, it's not going to be around in the next 10 years. Oh, that's a shame. Okay, let's not worry about it. But then if you actually model out some of these technologies, they're within our children's lifetime. So that's unbelievable to me. And if I mention large language models having sort of 10% increase in labor productivity, could you imagine the economic potential to have unlimited labor, intellectual labor at will? We're getting sort of sci-fi futurist, and that's fine because it is state of the future. But to me, that feels like along with AGI, which we don't know if we can create, whole brain emulation, we sort of do know what we could do. It's just engineering. It's just more compute, probably more energy, actually. You probably need fusion, maybe, um, to be able to provide enough limitless energy to be able to, to run this stuff. But yeah, whole brain emulation to me is the, the holy grail. And if I were like you know, a 20-year-old thinking about what I wanted to dedicate my life to, I would probably think modeling, start with worms, which we're, we're getting closer to, and then rats, mice, and then eventually, I hope that we're on that pathway. You know, if you told me 20 years ago, if you were talking to me 20 years ago or 10 years ago and saying something would take 10, 20 years, that would feel, you know, like a, a lifetime away. But, you know, outliers, almost 10 years old, you know, I've been working in the web and remember taking Facebook into advertising agencies when they had like a team of five people here in Europe. That was 20 years ago. 20 years isn't a very long time, really, in the scheme of things, as you say, for, for a lot of these things to kind of catalyze. Lawrence, it's been great catching up. I'm glad we did this publicly rather than just you and me, although it would be good to get a beer in at some point. And it looks like you've been working out a bit, mate, as well. I'm looking at those arms. You've got some guns on you at the moment. I'm not actually holding them on purpose to do that, but yeah, what can, what, what can I say? I wasn't saying you were showing off, but uh, I, I noticed them anyway, so um, that's uh, not sure it says more about me than you. Anyway, <laughs> thanks. Lawrence, thanks for coming on. How can people find you, follow you, and also find and contribute to State of the Future? So it's stateofthefuture.xyz as the just like the basic website it's got all the information on but actually the the, the most important way at the moment is probably the substack which is weekly and um, so substack dot uh, state of the future and the reason why i think that's important is because every week i'm sort of saying here's what i'm focusing on this week next week i'll be focusing on this are you building in this space getting touch you know you're looking for investment getting touch so it's actually sort of like a, a exactly as you described earlier on work thinking in out loud um, just in this newsletter. So I would recommend subscribing to that first and foremost. I'm technically on X, but as you, as you know, I'm not a huge X uh, user or social media user. So the Substack, I think, is best. It's getting worse by the minute as well. 
enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.